0: Hey folks, and welcome back to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our walk through James Jordan's book, Through New Eyes. and here, the guys will be discussing chapter 10, which is entitled Breaking Bread – The Rite of Transformation. We do invite you, as always, to take a look at those links down there in the show notes. And specifically, if you haven't already subscribed to our new podcast, The Civitas Podcast, there are links in the show notes to both Apple and Spotify where you can subscribe and keep up to date with our new podcast, which is with Peter Lightheart and James Wood, as they continue to work through their thoughts on political theology, post-liberalism, and ecclesiocentrism. As always, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you are sharpened and encouraged by this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John discussing Through New Eyes.
1: Welcome to the Theopas Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart and I'm here today with James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers. Brian Mose, as usual, is recording and editing and making sure that this gets out to you. Uh, We're recording this in the week after Christmas, but uh, by the time you hear it, it's going to be the new year, 2023, so we wish you all a happy new year and wish you the Lord's blessings in the coming year. As we were getting started with our recording, uh, Brian was giving us some statistics from 2022, and uh, up till today, we're recording on December 27th, 2022. Up until today, we have nearly a million listens To the podcast, that's all—all episodes over the course of the year. Uh, We had uh, a million plus in the previous years on the podcast, but we've sped up and uh, very grateful for you uh, tuning in and listening to us. And we pray that it will continue to be a a beneficial, edifying podcast for you, uh, and that you'll tell your friends about it, keep spreading the word about the podcast, uh, let other people know that you enjoy it, uh, and uh, keep expanding our audience. We're in the middle of a series going through James Jordan's book through New Eyes. Uh, And we've gotten to a chapter, uh, the beginning of a new section, actually, uh, part three, which is entitled Transformation. And uh, from this point, Jim's book is going to move to a different gear, as it were. He begins the book with a couple of chapters talking about the nature of reality as a symbolic reality. Creation is created as something that manifests the glory of God. It's symbolic of God. Everything that God makes reveals something of his character He sets up that kind of general framework for understanding biblical uses of created symbolism. Then he goes through a section where he's talking about what he calls the furniture of creation, the things that are in the world, the shape of the world, the three-tier universe, heavens above, earth beneath, and waters under the earth, the various things that populate those different zones of creation. And we've been looking at that part of the book for the last number of weeks of the furniture of creation. But I think that the next section is really important for understanding uh, Jim's entire approach to scripture. You can imagine a book about biblical symbolism that is just talking about static symbols, how different different things that are in the world reveal God, how they tell us something about God, how they fit into an overall pattern of uh, of symbolism. But uh, Jim rightly focuses on the fact that the Bible is a history the changes that take place over time are essential to what the Bible is teaching us. It's not just teaching us what it, about permanent things that are in the world, but it's teaching us about how the world has been, has developed, and how humanity has matured, and how God, God has matured the world. And a part of what He's doing is trying to isolate and highlight patterns in Scripture that are the patterns of history. It's not just that the Bible. Reveals to us the meaning of different things in the world, the meaning of different objects in the world, trees and animals and stars and sun and moon and so on. But it also reveals to us patterns of change and patterns which are patterns of God's working. And so, part of what He's doing in in this uh, in this chapter and the following chapters is looking at these recurring patterns, recurring narrative patterns, recurring plot patterns. These are not just literary patterns. I go back to an earlier discussion that we had in this series on typology, and Jim emphasizes that that typology is not just a way of reading the biblical text, but it's a way of reading the biblical text that's based on the conviction that history has a certain shape, that history has a kind of shape with recurring kinds of events and recurring kinds of characters. And typology is a way of identifying those recurring events uh, so you see an Adam and then another Adam and then another Adam who's Noah and then another Adam who's Abraham and another Adam who's Moses, another Adam who's David. And the reason why you can identify all those with the original Adam pointing to the last Adam is because God has organized the world and he continues to organize and orchestrate history with these recurring patterns. And the Bible gives us insight into those recurring patterns. And that's not just a, 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 a not just satisfying a kind of esoteric desire to understand the meaning of things and the meaning of history but it gives us i think practical insight into what the church is how the church should respond to different situations this is a point that jim doesn't explicitly get into at the very end of the book but i think it's important to bring it up to this point in the in his to, to understand why he's going into into the details of these different these different transitions and the different orders of the world that god creates and then changes and then modifies the goal is to kind of put us into the rhythm help us to learn the dance steps of God's work in history so that we can as it were dance along with him we can begin to discern where we are within the within the plot of history we can begin to have sanctified guesses about what's coming next because we've seen it before just as when you're reading the book of exodus you can kind of anticipate the next step of the exodus story because Genesis is full of Exodus stories that anticipate and foreshadow what's going on in the book of Exodus, and you get to the Gospels, and you can generally discern certain movements that Jesus is going to make because you've seen these things happen in the Old Testament that are foreshadowing the Messiah, and Jesus is uh, living out those patterns and and movements and transformations of history. So, it's a way of getting us into that rhythm so that we can uh, discern the times and we can know the times, and we can know what we we are to do, and what God is doing in the world. It doesn't make us prophets in the full biblical sense of foretelling the future, but it is a way of training us to be prophets in a somewhat lesser sense that we can discern what God is doing. We can we can recognize the patterns, and we can kind of anticipate where God is going in a particular at a particular point in history.
2: Hmm. And just to kind of underline that. Peter, or perhaps just to ex- express it differently. I, I think for a lot of people, typology is kind of a nice to have, you know, it's um, kind of, it's interesting if you see it, but nothing really hangs on it, you know? And I think we'd probably want to say that typology is something much more fundamental to um, scripture than that. So much of, let's say, our Christology is, um, Hangs on us understanding who um, Adam is, what he did, who David is, um, who Abraham is. All all, all these figures in in the Old Testament, the the New Testament's own Christology kind of is is predicated on that. So there's a a, a, a um, fundamentalness to typology, which I think is often missed, you know.
1: One of the patterns that Jim is looking at, as always, he's going back to uh, the creation accounts. The seven days of creation are a pattern that's recurring, and he he develops that both in Through New Eyes and other other writings. Uh, but the thing he focuses on in this, in this chapter is kind of the pattern of each day of the creation. Uh, there are variations within each day, uh, more variations than we sometimes realize between the different days of creation. But there's still the general scheme of the way that Jim describes it is that God takes hold of the creation. He restructures it, tears it apart, and, and puts it back together differently. And uh, part of that process of restructuring is to assign new names. So, on day two, for example, he separates the waters above and below. He inserts the firmament, and he uh, gives a name to the firmament that's going to be the divider between the waters above and below. He distributes things that he's made or goods that he's produced. Those are evaluated by those who receive those gifts, and then there's enjoyment of them. And that you have that that sort of pattern that recurs in general through the creation week. It recurs on each day of the creation week in a certain sense. God sees and he approves, so he's evaluating. He enjoys his creation on each day, the good creation that he's formed. And so, there's this recurring pattern each day. That's going to become a pattern not just for the Creation Week, but he's going to use that. Jim is going to use that pattern as a template for understanding what God is doing throughout the history of the throughout the history of the Bible. So God is going to take hold of the world. He's going to tear it apart with the flood, and he's going to put it back together differently. He's going to take hold of the world in Egypt. He's going to tear Egypt apart, and he's going to put the world back together differently. And he's going to evaluate it as good, and he's going to share out certain certain blessings and benefits and and uh, those are going to be enjoyed by the recipients of those blessings. So this this creation series of actions that God goes through are are going to be a a major recurring pattern of events and pattern of actions all the way through the rest of the book. This chapter
3: is just absolutely brilliant. There's so much here uh especially given the way in which analyses of the Lord's Supper, of the ritual of the Lord's Supper, has suffered uh, in the history of the church and history of even Protestantism, uh, suffered from this uh, concentration on the elements uh, and the symbolism, the kind of static symbolism of the bread and the wine. And what Jim does here is open up a whole new way of not just seeing and looking At the elements, uh, but also of doing it, and he, you know, it's a ritual. There's a sequence. There's a sequence of actions. There is um, this, and then that, and then something else. And so he analyzes why is it that this sequence is uh, in is ordered like this. And uh, the brilliance here is that well, it's it's all these connections, of course. The, the right of transformation with the bread, with the wine, with the Thanksgiving, with what you're doing with it, that then connects up with how God creates the world, as Peter just said, how God also cuts and makes covenants. Um, and then probably in the end, again, one of the most pastoral, pastorally useful kinds of uh, uh, applications of this is that, you know, what people do In the liturgy, liturgical piety uh, serves practical piety. Um, So what you have in the Lord's Supper is this basic pattern, not just um, of something that happens in isolation in church, but in union with Christ. Now we know what we're supposed to do with the world and we take hold of things. We give thanks for them we divide them and recombine them and make them into new kinds of things. And then we give them away. Um, and then we we, will, we give them new names and we give them away and then we enjoy them. You know, this basic kind of action is what everybody does every day, all the time. Uh, and once you see that, you see the the value of doing the Lord's supper, for example, every week uh, so that you this pattern of life gets infused into you. Uh, but the amazing thing to me is that not very many people have really analyzed the supper, the ritual, the supper, the sequence, the order of the supper, in this way. And it's surprising to me that no one has really thought about this. And I, and some of it, I think is just in the history of of theologizing about the supper we've got so obsessed with pin to tail on the body and blood of Christ, you know, where is it in under with, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff really has sidetracked us, at least from seeing the importance of the ritual and how the ritual then shapes. And if, if it, if it is true, and it is that the ritual of the supper is at the heart of our liturgy, that that doing that regularly in the right way patterns people to live in God's world as his images and do the kinds of things that he did at creation that we do in a limited form, modified form as image bearers. And I mean, it just, it shoots
4: through all of life. One thing that I found very helpful in your work, Peter, and it really, I think you're drawing upon Jim at this point, but also developing some of his thought is the way that when we think about bread and wine, they are not naturally occurring substances. They're things that require cultivation. They require, indeed, a whole culture and a whole society to sustain these practices. can think about the way in which the practices by which bread is formed are ones that are constantly used as part of biblical analogy for understanding the development of the people of God, whether that's the process of sowing and the process of um, watering and preparing and seeking the rains, or whether it's the process of preparing the grain and making it into flour or baking it into bread, and this I think ties in very much with what Jim's talking about in this chapter.
1: Uh, I want to highlight uh, something that uh, Jeff said and both of you've been alluding to, and that, yeah, I, I agree, Jeff. This is a brilliant chapter, and part of it, I remember the experience of reading it for the first time and realizing. That this you got this creation pattern that Jim lays out, and then uh, he uses a, a, a completely mundane example to illustrate how this uh, pattern is replicated in human life. He talks about getting a glass of water, so uh, you grab the glass of water, you remove it from the cabinet, uh, so there's a restructuring of the world that's taking place. You put water in it, so you're again restructuring the world and putting uh, water from your from the pipe into the into the glass of water, this is now a glass of water. This is now a drink rather than just an empty glass and water. You restructure the world, and you have something that's new in the world. So you're giving a new name to it. Uh, you taste, and you say, "Ah, oh, that's refreshing." And then you sit back and enjoy it. And Jim's point is that even in this most mundane activity, which we're constantly doing, everything we do has this kind of structure to it. Well, you can think about taking hold of as physical. You might have. Some yard work to do, and you take hold of some a stump that you're trying to remove, and you're you're trying to pull it up, and you're restructuring. You have physical actions like that, but when when uh, you know I sit down to write an essay or write a newsletter, uh, I have different things that I've read that are entering into what I want to say, and I'm reworking it, unless I'm plagiarizing, which I'm not. I'm reworking what I've read. I'm giving it a new form. I'm reshaping it. I'm testing it to make sure it's good. I'm refining it. Then I sit back and say, that's that's usually what I say is that's as good as I can do given the time constraints that I have, which is not what God said, but that's 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 what I say. But every human activity has this kind of structure to it, which means that every human activity is a kind of imaging of God's original creative act. We are constantly transforming the world in all kinds of minuscule ways, but each one of those very tiny actions... Uh, is replicating and, and imaging the action of God in making the universe. And that just that just gives a uh, it it gives a a cosmic kind of perspective on the the daily actions of our life that uh, I, I, nothing nothing else that I've ever read has given me that kind of feel for the significance of what I'm doing that uh, uh, even the most mundane thing I serve I serve uh, Noel a cup of coffee at, in the bed in the morning. Uh, And what I'm doing is exactly that kind of sequence of events. And there's a, there's a, uh, there's a kind of small, small scale creation event, new creation event taking place in that. Right. And it seems significant to notice the way in which this is
2: kind of, um, the way in which Jim grounds this in just a a close um, reading of Genesis, doesn't it? So I'm now on um, page, 118 and, and jim says god's original creation of the heavens and the earth out of nothing obviously cannot be imitated by man um from that point on however god acted in ways that man can copy he gave form to the shapeless named the unnamed etc and and that just seems significant to me i mean i i remember um the first time i kind of sat down and, and read the bible for myself i was probably like in my mid uh 20s or something and it struck me as kind of odd that the text was very um significantly you know that god was saying let the waters bring forth or, or, or let the earth bring forth this and i remember thinking at the time you know if uh the text wanted to go against um Evolutionary, evolutionary thought, or something, wouldn't it just have everything bang just created ex nihilo all, all, all the time? You know, and and um, yeah, it, it just seems significant then that kind of um, uh, that God has deliberately acted um,
3: in in that way. And this is something everybody does. This is this helps, I think, uh, answer this question about the image of God and did you know mankind lose the image of God at the fall? Well, no, every, everybody inescapably images God, but the restoration of the um, image is all about getting man to acknowledge the fact that, and give thanks for the fact that these are gifts that God gives him and abilities, and then using creation, of course, according to the stipulations, the, the rules that God has given us. You know, Peter, you mentioned how, that simple illustration that Jim uses about a glass of water. I've used another illustration. I may have gotten this from Jim in some other context. I'm not sure, but so, you know, Janet takes hold of the ingredients for a cake. She takes hold of them. And now the next thing is key, whether she does it explicitly or whether she, you know, does it at church or regularly, she gives thanks for, to God for the ingredients. She gives thanks. She may do it in her heart, or she may just do it on Sunday and that then kind of covers everything, but still that's the restoration of piety. Then she divides the ingredients and recombines them and creates a cake and she calls it a cake. Okay. It's, it's not flour and sugar and baking soda or whatever anymore, chocolate uh, cocoa. It is now a cake. It's got a new name. And then she takes this cake, which she's created, and she uses it according to God's rules. She doesn't throw it in the face of her husband. Uh, She distributes it to her family with stipulations, like, you know, don't eat it before dinner. And then her and her family evaluate it and enjoy it. And then also the, the last step is even like what God does too with his work. God, by doing it and telling us how he did it passes on to us uh, how we're to do it. Well, Janet passes on the knowledge and skill that's involved in this cake making to her daughter or to her son so that others can also do that and enjoy it. I mean, that once you, once you explain that kind of thing to people, they start thinking of all sorts of ways in which this works and how and why it is that they're coming to church and doing this every week. Oh, Okay. I'm learning how to do what I inescapably do as the image of God, but I'm learning how to do it right. I'm learning how to do it for God's glory. I'm learning how to do it so that what I create will further and advance his kingdom. Uh, I'm learning how to do this so that I can, uh, unlike Adam and Eve, who took hold of the, the fruit when they weren't supposed to and could not have given thanks for it, and they were also... Uh, it was explicitly a violation of God's uh, rules about that particular tree. Well, I'm going to follow God's rules. I'm going to give thanks. I'm going to take hold of only those things that I can give thanks for. I'm going to create things and give them out to people, not hoard them myself, but actually be generous with it. And all of that is, is a restoration of the image of God. It's it's quite amazing when people see it. I, I've seen you know, people's eyes light up. It's like, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah, just to, just to highlight what uh, the connection you were making there between the Lord's Supper and this pattern of creation and human action, the connection that, uh, that Jim makes is with the act of thanksgiving. I mean, Eucharist means thanksgiving. Uh, the Eucharistic prayer, a prayer of thanksgiving for the bread and the wine has been uh, a standard part of Christian liturgy from the beginning and by making the connection between he's making a connection between this pattern of uh, god's action in creation the pattern of human action uh, in the world constantly modifying and renewing the creation in various ways and you find the same pattern in the in the eucharistic rite jesus takes hold of the bread jesus restructures the bread jesus renames the bread this is my body jesus uh, distributes the bread for his uh, disciples to taste and evaluate and eat and to enjoy, uh, but the key—the key Eucharistic moment is that in taking hold of the of the bread, he gives thanks. Uh, that's what that's what we're called to do. Not just in the Eucharist at the, at the Lord's table, but that's the pattern that we're supposed to replicate. So every time we take hold of whatever it is we're going to do, uh, take hold of the books that I'm going to read for an article, take hold of the the stump that I'm going to try to pull out of my backyard. Um, we're taking hold of things, and as you as you said, Jeff, we're either implicitly giving thanks or we're explicitly giving thanks. That infuses Eucharist into everything that we're doing, and it it's a way that worship kind of repatterns us and reprograms us so that we are acting in the world in the way that God intends us to act. That is receiving His world as a gift, and then acting in the world in conformity with His desires because because we we're honoring the Giver in doing it. So there's it's the key thing is the thanksgiving as the, uh, that's the Eucharistic element in, uh, in all human, in all human action.
4: And in these actions, we're also forming a relationship with God in the things that we take hold of and also, um, extending ourselves out, taking things in when we're eating the bread, it becomes part of us. Part of the world that was formed through our transformative labor is, given we give thanks for it and we receive it as a form of communion with god and in that action more broadly we can see as it were the reality of our relationship with the world this is something that Alexander Schmemann deals with very well in for the life of the world this relationship that human beings have with the creation as eaters as those who relate to the creation almost as a table spread for them giving thanks for what they have received, taking it into themselves as they have transformed things through fire, through the processes of baking, through the processes of the different ways in which we take ingredients, mix them together, form a cake, or we take some creature and we get its meat and we prepare it for a proper meal. In all of these ways, the creation becomes part of us and also through our transformative labors, our identity spreads out and we place our impress upon the creation without getting overly Lockean about this but mixing our labor with the creation it becomes something that is an extension of us and so when we talk about our property often that's something that even if we may want to adjust his theory somewhat that's something that's happening that we're taking the creation and transforming it It bears the impress of us. And then we can also take it into us. We can clothe ourselves with it. We can gradually transform it in ways that express this creation as a site of fellowship, as a site of fellowship between us and the creation, of a site of fellowship between us and God, a site of fellowship between us and our neighbor.
3: And we're giving thanks not only for the basic needs we have, we're all, we, there's bread and wine, bread is fuel, bread is nourishment, bread is what we need, wine is luxury, wine is enjoyment, wine is, uh, is something that is not a basic need. So it, it pretty much includes all of life, uh, what we need and what we enjoy, what we love. Uh, and like you said, Alistair, too, earlier, that bread coming to us is the work of our hands. It's the work of somebody's hands so that even when we take hold of that, we're giving thanks for the bakers uh, and the farmers and whoever delivered the grain to the baker and all that. When we give thanks for the wine, we are giving thanks for the skill involved in making wine, for the skill and patience that someone took in, in making this wine. It ripples out just into all of culture, like you said. Yeah, and just
2: to underline that kind of importance and sanctifying work of giving thanks, and I think this is a um, example that Jim even um, mentions. If you think about the um, line of Cain, for instance, um, you know you, you have there at the very outset of the you know God's story, kind of two different lines, and and they go out and and interact with their worlds, you know, and and Cain is a um, one who works the ground and the things that he kind of works and him and his, his descendants bring forth are are good things. You know, cities, um, uh, metal, bronze, iron, um, music, you know, the, these are all things that are going to feature in God's um, plans. But clearly there is something wrong, as Hebrews tells us, with the heart kind of thing. And, and so um, you've got kind of – I think you said, Jeff. You know, man is going to act in this creative way, whether he wants to or not. That's just the way we are. And Cain's line does that, but it's not coupled with worship, and it's not coupled with thanksgiving. And as a result, as a result, sorry, it's gone. It's left behind in the flood. It doesn't make it through. You know.
1: Yeah. So that's a way of expanding on what Paul says in Romans one, where he talks about ingratitude not acknowledging god as god or giving thanks as the root source uh, that's connected to idolatry that produces sexual confusion and sexual perversions that downstream produces all kinds of other social and moral ills but the source of that is ingratitude and so yeah that's the by retraining us in, in to live lives of gratitude the eucharist is overcoming the the canite trajectory the degradation that the canites Line uh, brought to the world and re retuning us again, re reintroducing us to the rhythm of God's actions uh, by by training us in thanksgiving. that's that's the uh, that's the root that uh, springs out in these cultural manifestations we've been talking about. We've been focusing a lot on the uh, what Jim describes as kind of the day by day actions of God. He takes hold of the creation, He tears it apart. He gives new names to things. He distributes things uh, in a in a new way evaluates, enjoys it. But Jim is also pointing to the fact that this series of actions is repeated day after day through the creation week, and then through the history that's recorded in the Bible. God does this on a large scale. He does it periodically. He takes hold of the world. He rips the world apart. He puts it together in a new way, uh, gives new names to things, then uh, evaluates and so on. But uh, you also have, within the creation week, you don't have that transformation taking place on each day in isolation. But over the course of the week, you have a movement from one moment of transformation, one action of transformation on day one, to another act of transformation on day two, to another one on day three, another one on day four. And each time that God goes through this sequence of actions, he's redoing the world in some fashion, uh, and he's making the world better. So a world that is light that is organized by a rhythm of light and darkness, that's a good world. But then the day two, he makes it even better by separating the waters above and the waters below and inserting the firmament between. That's that's a better world now. And then on day three, he separates the waters below so that dry land appears and plants begin to grow in the dry land. That's even better. So the, the creation week is moving from glory to glory. Uh, so each of these each time God goes through the sequence of actions, he's doing something new in the world. And he's doing something new in the world to bring it to a a stage of greater glory. That's what he's going to be doing. Uh, That's what he is doing through the course of of history. Uh, And that's what human beings are called to do. Of course, again, to go back to James' point, uh, this is not what the Cainite line does. Uh, They unglorify the world. They uglify the world rather than beautify it uh, because they don't give thanks, because they don't acknowledge God as God. They don't acknowledge the creation as a gift from God. Uh, and so they abuse it and misuse it and abuse uh, their fellow human beings. But uh, there's there's this progression from glory to glory. As we go through these actions, God's intention is that we participate in his work of glorifying the creation.
2: Yeah, I, I was struck by that, the way in which Jim describes the creation as going from glory to glory. Because I've encountered quite a lot of um, readings of Genesis, which I think are overly... Um, Driven by ideas from outside scripture, kind of Canaanite myths and so on, that the world starts off formless and and void, and and that's bad. That's kind of chaotic and and something that needs to be um, addressed and and even redeemed. And I I don't, I don't kind of see see that. And um, as I was thinking about that, I, I was thinking, you know, we're familiar with. Um, Formlessness as sort of things that can be formless can be beautiful. I mean, if you think of a, a, a desert landscape or something, just some absolutely vast sweeping um uh, uh, sandscape, perhaps with the odd dune, there, there's an incredible beauty to that. Um And yet at the same time, there's, there, there's a formlessness, you know, and, and there are things that you can do then to, order that. And I think it's helpful of, of thinking of God's uh, the the um, direction of traveling creation week as that, um, yes, things are being given more order, but it is going from glory to glory rather than going from something kind of bad and chaotic to, to something good.
3: Uh, here's a question I've been asked uh, with regard to this of moving from glory to glory. And it relates to uh, this chapter as well. And that is uh, modernism has a particular narrative of progress. Uh, And, and I've, I've been challenged before by uh, other Christians uh, about this. Well, you know, Jim seems to have this notion of progress here, which is um, unbiblical. It's modernist. We don't believe in progress. Uh, And so my question to you guys is, uh, how do we how do we answer that? What's a, what's a good
4: answer to that? Well, it seems to me that even if we're paying attention to the biblical narrative, there are many points at which we can see things that remind us of the beginning of Genesis, but clearly represent some movement beyond it. So, most notably at the very end of Scripture, we have again a garden-type scenario with a male and female. This time, the lamb and his bride, but We have a garden city. There are treasures from the land, the gold, the precious stones, and also from the sea, the gates of pearl. And so there's a sense in which the riches that are described as being out in the wider land at the beginning of Genesis have been taken in. There's been a transformation that has occurred. And so there's clearly some sort of progress. But yet even before that, we have instances, for instance, at the end of the book of Exodus, we have the description of Moses putting together the tabernacle, and the language that's used is very clearly redolent of the language of the Lord's own creation, that Moses finishes the work. Moses sets up and consecrates this tabernacle as a sort of sabbatical tent in a way that's equivalent to the seventh day. And so what we're having here is not the Lord creating directly, but the Lord commissioning, giving the plans for the tabernacle to Moses on the mount. And then Moses orchestrating the work of the Israelites who have been equipped by the Holy Spirit, in the case of Bezalel and the Holy Ab, to actually perform this with skill and with craftsmanship. And then if we go even further, we have David with a dream and a sense of what the temple ought to be. And there seems to be perhaps there a bit more of a sense of agency that David has in realizing this project, not given direct plans, but given the very clear idea of what he's aiming towards. And then he instructs his son. And when we again read the beginning of 1st um, Kings, we have a description of the formation of the temple that is very clearly using the language of the creation and of Eden. And so I think what we're seeing in each of these cases is a sort of progression and the way that Jim has also talked about the anthropological progression that we see with the movement from the law to the wisdom literature, to the prophetic literature, and then into what it means for God to be incarnate in Christ and for a people to be formed in Christ. I think we're dealing very clearly with some sort of maturation taking place. Now, this is not a Hegelian vision of maturation. It's not um, the the way in which um, we have a sort of modern idealization of Whiggish progress. This is a vision that's very clearly um, native to the scripture itself. And there is something um, post-millennial about it, but it's not one that is just constant unremitting progress. There are dark periods. There are periods of regression as well as progression. And I think when we Understand it in biblical terms. We have a far richer framework for understanding what our culture refers to as progress, but also criticizing our culture's visions and ideologies of progress.
1: Yeah, I'd add just a couple of things to what Alistair said. I think one thing that uh, um, qualifies modifies understand the biblical understanding is that the glorification does not necessarily take the form of overt or or um, obvious external kind of glory. This is one of the things that Jim points out in the chapter where he talks about the restoration period after the exile, uh, and he fits that into this reading of the Bible as an as a movement from glory to glory. Uh, but uh, the the second temple we know from uh, Ezra and Nehemiah that the second temple disappointed the builders of this uh, of the temple. It, it the some of them remembered the glory of Solomon's temple and they were. Uh, they were disappointed by the lack of visible glory um and so the the visible glory is less and yet the the glory of Israel at the and during the restoration period and actually the glory of the temple, the reality of the temple is what Ezekiel sees in his vision, but it's not a visible reality. so you don't want to you don't want to overplay that because then then glory becomes something that's in, completely invisible but that's I think that's an important qualification. so is it is it a kind of glorification? Uh, for the church to go through a modern period of fragmentation, and in a lot of ways, uh, I think it's a it's a tragedy for the church to go through this. And yet, in the midst of this, there's the the birth of the missionary movement, uh, which has taken the gospel to every corner of the earth. Uh, unprecedented expansion of the Christian church in the last two centuries, in the midst of a period of what uh, looks like a, you know aggressive secularization, decline fragmentation of the church, and yet in the midst of that, there's this uh, there's this uh, progress of the kingdom. So that's a different kind of glory than what you have in the transition from the Roman Empire into the medieval age and up to the high middle ages, where you have a very visible kind of manifestation of glory. So uh, that, that would be an important qualification, that glory can take kind of different forms. The other thing I, I'd want to point out is, is to fill out one thing that Alistair said, is that you're not talking about, the Bible doesn't give us a a kind of straight line, progressive line of development and progress. Uh, there is a kind of cyclical character to it, and there is a kind of organic, semi organic. It's, it's not. I don't want to say it's organic. Uh, it looks like an organic process of growth, maturation, height of powers, decline, death, and then restoration. It looks like a a, a natural si- a natural life cycle, and that's the that's something like the the way that Jim is going to read the the history of the Bible. So you have these cyclical cyclical kinds of movements, which include periods of decline, long periods of decline and rebellion, periods of death and destruction, but those are part of God's work of uh, glorifying the world. And and uh, that's an evangelical point to make, that the cross is the, the means for the glorification of the world, and without the cross, the glorification doesn't happen. But I, I think that that would distinguish it at least from certain versions of modern ideas of progress, that there's this... There is this kind of cycle built into it that uh, acknowledges the role of the cross, the role of suffering, and and periods of decline and uh, contraction.
0: Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those.